Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm hoping you're staying cool in all the summer heat. I'm back into the heat after a respite in Alaska, but on a boat, not an airplane. I'm not only grateful for that, but also grateful I'm not in the hot seat the airline CEOs are finding themselves in this summer. The temperature is certainly getting turned up on delays and disruptions. Scott McCartney, I hope you are staying cool. Is that possible in Texas? No, I'm afraid not, Ben, and, and welcome back. The only way to stay cool in Texas these days is in an ice bath. Yesterday morning when I took the dog out, it was 95 degrees early in the morning. I have to say, I hated the idea of indoor baseball here in Dallas, but I'm going to two baseball games this weekend with different friends to see the first place Los Angeles Dodgers battle the first place Texas Rangers. And okay, I'll admit I was wrong about that stadium thing. Thank God it's air conditioned. I also never thought I'd see a mass of people huddled in an underground tunnel at Chicago O'Hare because of a nearby tornado. But I did think I'd see record revenue this summer from Delta Airlines and others. We have a lot to talk about this week, Ben, as airline earnings are being reported. We have some clarifications to make and, as usual, some interesting questions from listeners. And we'll talk to Khalid Usman of Oliver Wyman about the state of the industry, from continued pain points to interesting forecasts on the future of the regional jet fleet in the U.S., Oliver Wyman's annual airline economic analysis is out, and this year's edition has some fascinating revelations. I have to admit, Scott, I always find earnings seasons both interesting and insightful. When I was an airline executive reporting quarterly results, there was always a lot of prep and practice. And usually that meant previewing a script, rewriting it, rewriting it, practicing it again. The challenge that many of these earnings calls have is that on the one hand, the companies are expected to be managing for the long term, right? They sign long-term labor contracts. They buy airplanes that they're not going to get for, in some cases, 10 years if it's United's supersonic. And obviously, you want to think about your relationship with customers and things. But at the same time, investors have these quarterly targets. So you got to explain what happened this quarter and how that compares to what everyone was expecting, but within the context of the greater longer-term thing. And sometimes that's a real tough balance. If the quarter's great and you want to use that to talk about how the future looks great, it's easy, but it doesn't always work out that way. No, it's really, really a fascinating business. Uh, you know, you could have great earnings and stock goes down. I always thought that was crazy, um, fascinating, um, or or bad earnings and the stock goes up. So Delta was first in line for the earnings takeoff, as it always is, and Delta's earnings were better than expected. Revenue hit a record fifteen point eight billion for the quarter. Delta's net profit margin was a very respectful 11.7%. Stronger international demand and cheaper fuel. Fuel costs were down 22%. 
Both boosted the bottom line. CEO Ed Bastian said he thinks we're only in the middle innings of a travel surge, and he expects earnings growth to continue. Bastian said capacity constraints at U.S. carriers will not let them catch up with demand for an extended period of time. And he said demand for premium seats continued to outpace coach demand in the quarter. Interestingly, unit revenue was up only 1%, but capacity was up 17%. So Delta added a ton of capacity and kept prices about the same as a year earlier, which is impressive. As before, corporate travel is only inching back, and Bastion thinks we are in a new paradigm there, and it's good for airlines. He said, quote, this new hybrid work pattern that we see, that's not going away, so potentially any weekend could be a long weekend, end quote. Leisure travel is clearly fueling this demand fire. Delta benefited from very strong transatlantic travel, and Bastion thinks that will continue into the fall. That would be very good news for airlines. As you've noted before, Ben, Last year, lots of people thought, sure, summer is strong, but watch out when the drop-off comes in the fall. But it didn't come last year, and Ed Bastian, for one, is suggesting that it's not coming this year either. We'll get more clarity this week as United and American report, and then the rest of the industry over the following two weeks. Bottom line, I think, is that if you are looking for signs of a looming recession or economic slump, You sure aren't seeing it yet in the airline industry. As anyone who's been on a plane this summer knows, it's like airlines are selling air conditioning. It seems like everyone needs them. However, and there's always a however, Delta shares declined a bit Thursday and Friday after the earnings report. Most big airlines did. Oil prices went up some. Sometimes you report great earnings better than published expectations, but investors were quietly hoping for more and ended up disappointed by their own unrealistic expectations. And by the way, those expectations drive up the price before the earnings report, so the good news is already priced in. Who knows? There are a lot of labor tensions going on in the industry with unresolved contract talks. And we saw the Screen Actors Guild join the Writers Guild of America on strike against Hollywood studios and streaming services. I think strikes are more on people's mind these days. Or it may be that the market just isn't as confident in future demand for air travel as airlines are. Well, I think that may be it, Scott. It may be concerned about looming cost issues with both labor and other things. It could be sustainability of the fare environment which has stayed strong, but there isn't a lot of history to say it can stay that strong for that long. So we all hope Ed Bastian's right that the rest of this year will be great, but we just don't know. So again, Delta's numbers were great. I think it's funny that Ed Bastian used an American baseball analogy to say where they were on a business driven by international traffic. (laughs) (laughs) And that was kind of fun for me. (laughs) Um, And I think United and American soon are going to report similarly strong results, but somewhat different because of their ratio of domestic and international flying, and their own situations with their own labor and cost structures. So it's going to be an interesting week on the earnings side, for sure. Yeah, it is. It is. Wish them all good luck. (laughs) In other news, and I know I'm on my own on this one, Ben, since you're on the board of JetBlue, JetBlue decided to end its quest for a Northeast alliance with American. JetBlue won't appeal the judge's ruling against the alliance, and both airlines will stop selling tickets on each other's flights coming this Friday. Reciprocal benefits end, too, for flyers. Interestingly, American will appeal, 
still hopeful that higher courts might overturn the district court ruling that found the alliance anti-competitive and maybe American can get JetBlue back. JetBlue instead will focus on getting court approval for its pending acquisition of Spirit Airlines. The Justice Department has sued to block that merger, arguing that it would remove lower fares from the marketplace and harm consumers. A lot of observers thought JetBlue might have to choose one or the other, the deal with American or the deal with Spirit. That became an easy choice when the district court blocked the American deal. Does that clear the way for the Spirit deal or instead make the Spirit deal also imperiled in court? Who knows? I still believe a larger JetBlue, a more credible fifth competitor to the big four, will benefit consumers greatly. And a JetBlue Spirit merger will create more room for Frontier and the emerging flock of startups to continue to grow in the ultra-low-cost segment. It would be a healthier aviation industry once JetBlue gets through the difficult job of merging the two airlines into one. So stay tuned. It's going to be fascinating to see how this one ends up. And Scott, here's a story that I love and hate. (laughs) Japan Airlines is working with a clothing company to rent clothes to business and leisure visitors to Japan. You can select clothes based on size, season, and occasion. The airlines will lose out on baggage fees, but there are clothing rental fees to collect. JAL will run the service on a test basis for about a year. It's called, of course, Anywhere, Anywhere. This is actually an environmental effort. Japan Airlines says it hopes to reduce the weight of luggage so it will burn less fuel and reduce carbon emissions. Honestly, I think this is kind of a dumb idea, but it may work. And the idea is, would you go off on a week or longer trip without many clothes, knowing that you rented some based on what you picked online, but haven't really tried on and hope that they're actually there and they fit and they look good. (laughs) I mean, that all seems kind of strange to me. (laughs) And the other thing that might be easier is if they offered free laundry service. Uh, So say, only pack one or two days of clothes and we'll keep your clothes clean so you don't have to carry as much baggage. Or instead of renting clothes, say, what else would you have to bring? We'll meet you here with all the toiletries you need or things like that. My point is there are possibly other ways they could address to bring less baggage to save money. Or they could do the easiest thing, which is just jack up their bag fees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I'm with you, Ben. I think this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> the, the answer to your question is no. Uh, nobody's going to get in on an airplane with just their underwear and, and hope that there's a wardrobe uh, waiting for them that that they like that fits that's tailored that's wh- whatever. I think uh, this is probably the first and last uh, that we'll hear of the uh, any anywhere service. Um, but it does seem sort of a, a quintessential Japanese idea to say we're we're going to do this to reduce the weight of airplanes and and burn less carbon emissions. Um, if anything. This is uh, yet another sign of how desperate the uh, airline industry is on carbon emissions um, because it really uh, doesn't have a great solution to meet the 2050 commitment. I think that's right. There's a lot of pressure for that. But in a way, it's like saying, let's solve the national debt by not funding NPR. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like, what's really going to move the needle? And a little less baggage on each flight will help, but that's a small drop in the bucket from what the industry needs to meet their 2050 goal. Well, fortunately, one of our sponsors has a much more productive solution on the on this problem. Um, instead of uh, not taking clothes, uh, perhaps airlines need to look more at Pratt & Whitney engines. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, and not because you're not taking clothes, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. We also want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating more revenue, having lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, which we know are popular this summer, Duop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. Now let's talk to Oliver Wyman partner, Khaled Usman, about the findings of the annual airline economic analysis. Khaled Usman is a partner at consulting firm Oliver Wyman, focusing on aviation, aerospace, and defense. Khaled is based in Washington, D.C., and has two decades of experience in the aviation space and is passionate about airline commercial strategy. Khaled has a master's degree in supply chain management from MIT, an MBA in international aviation from Concordia University in Montreal, and a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. So we're not going to talk about specific Oliver Wyman clients or engagements, but we are going to talk about the firm's excellent airline economic analysis, of which Khaled is one of the authors. Thanks so much for joining us, Khaled. The annual airline economic analysis was always a great resource for me when I was reporting, a source of both industry data and story ideas. And I was thrilled to be able to help with some of the writing this year now that I'm in a consulting role. This year's report was really interesting because you not only documented the, the recovery of the industry, but structural changes. And I think this year's report is particularly significant since we're at a turning point. The data and analysis that you and your team put together really highlight significant change in key aspects. So let's start with what was the biggest takeaway for you? What do you think was, uh, was most revealing? Firstly, thanks uh, so much for inviting me, Scott and Ben. Um, always a big fan of your podcast, and it is my pleasure to be here. Um, and Scott, we are very excited and thankful for your tremendous contribution to uh, this year's airline economic analysis report. Our report is always a very fact and a data-driven based report that we produce every year to analyze industry performance in some of the recent uh, evolving trends. Now, getting to your question, the biggest takeaways for me um, is the strongest rebound that we have seen over the past several years. You know, while the road to recovery had been bumpy, and not just from a revenue standpoint and the start-stop nature of recovery that we have seen, but the operational and ramp-up issues also. But frankly, if you look at it, this is a phenomenal story of a comeback, a story where the airlines are on the way to a more financial stability 
but also building more operational resilience as you go through the journey to get the customers on time to their destinations. Now, if we look globally in June 23, the airline capacity on a global basis is only 5% below 2019 levels. Now, regions such as US, Middle East, and Latin America, they're leading with capacity almost back or higher than pre-pandemic levels. While international capacity was significantly down in the past, but uh, 23 summer schedules are building back with uh, major increases in international flights. And the current international global capacity is only down by 11%. Now, for sure, it was a leisure travel-driven recovery. Business travel, while it's still down, continues to recover, but uh, at a much slower pace. We have more emerging segments like blended travel or the B-Ledger segment. Uh, demand for summer travel this year continues to be booming and sets the airlines for good footing into this year. Now, the things for airlines to keep their eyes on is to ensure running a smoother operation by effective planning. And going forward, how do I keep a laser sharp focus on increasing costs? with the two biggest categories being fuel and labor, which we all know have been rising. Well, Kali, the report shows a significant improvement in yields, which as our most of our users know, is the price customers pay per mile. We all see that in higher fares and profits return for domestic US flying, Record profits, in fact. Now, before the pandemic, the low-cost carriers tended to outperform the hybrids, and the hybrids tended to outperform the big guys. Now, what does this look like as you break the industry into full-service, value, and ultra-low-cost carriers? That's uh, absolutely correct, Ben. Uh, touching on the airfares, and airfares always follow the macroeconomic theory of supply and demand. Uh, airlines' fares have been rising, and so are the prices within the whole travel ecosystem, including hotels and car rentals. Now, if you look at the airline prices last summer, U.S. domestic airfares rose as much as 25% from 2019 levels. And more recently in 23, uh, these airfares are trending around 10 to 12 percent higher than 2019. However, you know, I do want to add that while the airfares have gone higher, this is in backdrop of a significantly high inflation. Now, if you look at the cumulative inflation from start of 2019, in U.S., it is at 18.95 percent. And once again, once we do the math, the U.S. airfares on an inflation-adjusted basis are cheaper, which typically has been long-term trend over the past 30 years. But the international fares this summer are another story. Everybody is trying to get to Europe this summer, and again, the supply-demand theory is in play, and airfares are much higher. Now, let me try to answer the second part of the question, and I completely agree with you. In general, also coming out of uh, recessions or events of significance, we have typically seen low-cost carriers or ultra-low-cost carriers to fare better, as there's generally more price sensitivity among consumers. During the past years, it was a leisure-driven recovery and also in backdrop of new and emerging segments. And revenge travel, where people had not traveled for a long time, average savings rates had increased, and passengers would pay over and above with somewhat less price sensitivity and buy premium products to travel. Carriers such as full service network carriers were quick to adapt their networks and they were all chasing for the leisure traveler with less reliance on corporate. Now, overall, the performance for full service network carriers stood out better than others among the group of carriers and all achieved historically record revenues, as you pointed out. Uh, low-cost and ultra-low-cost carriers, on the other hand, expanded capacity more and while incrementally gained some domestic share, but better performance of network carriers was driven by capacity discipline, which was imposed by constraints such as labor shortages 
including a pilot and ground staff and a pace of ramp up, which simply takes time. So the, uh, the Oliver Wyman analysis showed that airline networks are creating almost as many possible itineraries for customers as before the pandemic, but with fewer flights. I thought this was fascinating. How have they managed to do that? Great, great question. Um, I mean, airline network efficiency increased over the period. Uh, if you look at some of the network stats, the overall journey time for passengers, that decreased by 5%. And while the flight volume decreased by 18%, the itineraries per flight only decreased by 4%, preserving the efficiency of the network and the connections that the airlines were offering. Now, airlines have reset their networks quickly to put seats where passengers wanted to go, but have done so more than that and made their networks more efficient. Networks also became more leisure driven, and we have seen the airline capacity ramp up was much quicker in airports that were leisure driven rather than city or business traffic focus. Part of the change, too, is that carriers are upgaging and using larger aircraft. And once we look at the numbers worldwide, the number of flights per route has declined uh, 11%, but the number of seats per departures has increased 4%. And airline networks did have to be rebuilt carefully to put in the right buffers as the airlines were recovering, making sure that they had the right trade-offs between revenue efficiency and operational resilience. And what has that meant for hub airports? And when you mix in more check baggage per passenger because of more leisure passengers, what are you seeing at the airports? Ben, airports in general and on-time performance uh, has suffered over, you know, in the past period, and there are numerous factors. Uh, we did a sampling of airports and uh, measuring D15, which is departure within 15 minutes. And for the sample of airports for North America sample, the deterioration was from 77 to 74% in 22 versus 2019. Within Europe and Middle East, uh, it was from 71 to 63, and Asia from 83 to 77%. So generally a downward trend over there. A lot of that had to do with the change within the travel ecosystem. And as you mentioned, because we have a different customer, more leisure oriented, requiring more touch points, more bags per customer, and also on the other side of the equation, a newer employee, which requires more training. So even if you put the same number of resources for serving the same number of customers, it puts additional strain on the system. And that has been manifesting across the system. Some of the recent on-time performance reporting in 2023 is showing improvements and marginally down from pre-pandemic 2019 levels. Although with a booming summer travel season and a combination of airspace congestion and controller shortages, things can turn south pretty quickly in case of any significant external factors such as bad weather events. And we've certainly seen some of that this summer already. The report shows how labor costs are already rising significantly for airlines. And, and you touched on this before. Hiring has gotten more expensive and employees are commanding significant raises. How, how do you see that impacting air travel? And will it be any different for the ultra low cost carriers versus the legacy airlines? Yes, I mean, the overall unit cost measured by cost per ASM that increased for airlines once we compare uh, 2022 versus 2019. It increased for the US airline industry by uh, as much as 28%. And a big driver for it was uh, labor and fuel. With labor shortages and pilot costs driving up uh, labor costs and fuel due to all the externalities with the Russia-Ukraine war. Now, so far, we had been working in an environment where uh, capacity constraints were ramping fares higher and the cost issues were hidden. But moving forward, we have to be cautious about how the increasing cost structures can impact the airline profitability and the resulting airfares that customers are paying. 
as we have heard from one of the largest ultra low cost carrier that the era of 10 euro fares is over. Although with sophisticated revenue management systems, you could still offer some tickets at uh, really cheap prices, but uh, directionally costs are rising and you have to cover incremental cost. So you will see less and less of that. And I think Ben knows about that segment more than anybody else. <laughs> well, thanks. We also see divergent strategies among airlines on business travel. American gutted a lot of their sales force. For example, Delta talks about premium leisure as maybe being better than business travel. What's the reality in the marketplace? And how has business travel changed? And what's the longer term outlook, Khalid? No, that's a that's a great question. And uh, business travel in the past uh, had been, for the most part, the bread and butter for a lot of airlines, especially the full service carriers, in a segment which was completely decimated during the pandemic. Um, now, the positive story there is that, despite the earlier skepticism about business travel disappearing, we are seeing slow but recovery in this segment. Uh, the recent uh, Global Business Travel Association survey uh, that points to increasing spend on business travel for 2023 with a sense of uh, optimism. And within the business travel, some segments like the small and mid-sized enterprises, that's almost back to 2019 levels. Now, overall, once we look at the business travel, it is trending around 76% of 2019 levels in the last three months, and it is increasing slowly and steadily. Now, there's some substitution that we are already seeing, but then there's the other emerging segments as well as you described and combining the business and leisure trips that are more common with the hybrid work environment. Uh, there will be slow improvement onwards, and that may be driven by the econometric-driven growth, the relationship of GDP with traffic. Uh, but we have seen several years of foregone growth and some correction and substitution that has happened. Now, airlines have adapted to this change, and that is reflected in how they're designing their networks. But we all know that uh, business travel, even with its changed nature and trends, will still be a part of the equation and, and more important for some airline business models uh, than others. So you mentioned changes in the network because of the, the different mix of leisure and, and business travelers. Are, are, do you see airlines reshaping premium products? Are they reconfiguring airplanes or clubs? And um, are there changes in terms of are there changes in terms of policies and prices? I mean, the leisure travel and premium leisure or the B ledger segments; uh, these are all that are getting a lot of attention today. Um, you know, once we look at the U.S. domestic market, some of the Upgrading trends also meant replacement of single cabin aircraft by dual cabin and more premium seats. Um, as an example, for one of the largest U.S. legacy airline, the use of dual cabin aircraft in domestic markets increased from 67% in 2019 to 80% in 2022. Other than that, airlines are also looking at right sizes cabins, introducing premium economy in their fleet and getting somewhat more aggressive at their rail rollout. Now, uh, reconfiguring is not something that happens overnight, but at the same time, that's a blessing in disguise also, as some of the customer trends can be transient, but uh, the business decisions do stick around for longer than that. Khalid, I'd like to ask a follow-up on this. I have a theory that premium leisure might actually help the hospitality space more than the airlines. If I'm taking a business trip and going for three days, I'm still taking one trip each way. But if I'm taking a leisure trip where I'm going to do some business and I spend 10 days, I'm still taking the same amount of flights but spending a lot more time in the hotel and maybe doing other things. Is that a valid way to think about premium leisure or am I overthinking it? 
No, Ben, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the frequency of travel for those segments would tend to be different because the premium ledger or the B ledger, you know, the attributes are different, right? I mean, I think you do end up spending more on the hotel in the that kind of a segment versus what you have a frequent flyer, which is on the road and doing like a Monday to Thursday travel, which is getting less and less. And I think some of that is emerging into a segment which could be blended. So there's never going to be a one-for-one -one substitution. And I think that's absolutely important and a key point for the airlines to consider. So another area where I thought the report had fascinating analysis was the regional jet market. You calculated the ideal fleet size for the industry, given fuel and labor costs, customer demand, and other factors. Is the regional jet dead, or is there a fleet size that will remain economically viable? The, the three largest U.S. carriers, they use approximately 45% of the global regional jet fleet through wholly owned subsidiaries or capacity purchase agreements. Now, from 2019 to 22, they lowered the regional jet capacity in the networks by 28%, while simultaneously increasing small-gauge mainline fleet capacity by about 1%. Now, overall, the global reduction was for about 14% for the regional jet fleet. But this is not the start of a trend, as regional capacity share in the broader U.S. market had been declining since 2010, in favor of mainline growth. Now, the declines in regional jet use are driven by several long-term structural changes, all favoring the use of larger aircraft. The pilot shortage also made it more expensive to fly smaller aircraft and regional jets, and it is felt more acutely by the regional carriers. Now, despite these headwinds, the analysis that we did and modeling that we did, it does indicate that regional jet operations still drive significant value as part of mainline carrier route networks. So that's not going away. And once we perform the simulations for airline networks across our uh, three study carrier group, the optimal profit level was achieved with a regional jet fleet reduction of 7% versus 22. And the highest level of reduction could be up to 22% if the pilot costs continue climbing significantly and carriers seek to preserve their earning levels. But I think the short message over there was that, yes, the regional fleet is not going away. There's probably going to be some calibration down and depending on the cost scenarios that we end up with. So as we wrap up here, where do you think the industry really is? 11 U.S. carriers had losses of $57 billion during the pandemic but now they're making money. Are they equipped to handle a recession if we have one? Do you think the demand strength as we have seen will continue and air travel is simply a bigger priority in people's lives, especially when the company isn't sending them on business trips? So the U.S. industry made $2 billion profit in 2022 and expected to make 11.5 and 23, according to the latest uh, International Air Transport Association projections. Globally, the industry will end 23 with profits of 9 billion, and that is 1.2% roughly net margin. Um, now, that translates into $2.25 profit per passenger, and these are quite razor thin margins. And for the question of recession, uh, there's an established relationship between GDP and passenger travel and airline revenues. And airline industry is not recession-proof. So it's a question of uh, scale and timing of recession. Now, the good part is that most of the carriers have shed excess capacity, have good balance sheets. Some have gone through restructuring. So if a recession were to happen right now, they would be better prepared than if it would have been several years ago. While the demand and fair environment is quite robust, we also have to uh, question and look at how much of this is permanent versus transient in nature. And some of this will get calibrated down, but may get somewhat offset by some of the slow pickup in the business travel that we're seeing. Overall, we all know that industry business is cyclical. Airlines need to keep their laser sharp focus on cost and productivity and that will help them sustain 
any of the drop within the particular segment and travel patterns. Um, keyword for the post-pandemic world is to be as nimble and as flexible as you can be and keep on watching for the risk factors on the horizon. Well, this has been great, Khaled. The report is fantastic. How do people get a copy if they want to read this? Then it's available on the Oliver Wyman website, and it's available if we Google as airline economic analysis as well. So, but yeah, if there's um, any questions, we're happy to direct them to the link as well. Terrific. Khaled, thank you so much. It's been fascinating to talk about all this. I think we have a better understanding of, of the industry and uh, appreciate all the analysis. Look forward to doing it again next year. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Scott and Ben. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for your time. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Khaled for bringing us a lot of new information about the state of the airline industry. The Oliver Wyman Report is always a great way to summarize what is going on. Scott, in this week's mailbag, several listeners pointed out that I need to update what I said about Hertz and electric vehicle rentals. I mentioned that you wouldn't be charged for electricity as long as you return the vehicle charged to at least 10% of battery capacity. Well, Hertz has moved on from that. Now the standard shown on Hertz's website is that you won't be charged as long as you return the vehicle charged to the same level as when you got the car or 75%, whichever is lower. Otherwise, recharging fees will apply. So as you might imagine, different car rental firms have different policies and fees. So much for making it easy and desirable. You know, one term that you hear with electric vehicles, Scott, is what's called range anxiety. Mm -hmm. People worried about, will the car have energy for my trip? I think what the rental industry is propagating is sort of fee anxiety. Yeah. Like, what if I'm down to 40%, but I don't know where to get my car charged before I get it returned? What am I going to be charged? So I think the industry is working through this, and we're not at the end of the road yet. No, I think I think this is a shame, Ben, because it, there is is all that anxiety. And what if you you know the car is charged at seventy percent? You're on the way to the airport. You got to top it off somewhere, uh, or and and find a charging, uh, or you're down to thirty percent, and it's going to take an hour to charge, but you have a flight to catch. Um, I think this makes EVs less desirable as a rental, and that's that's a shame. Rental car companies set out to be evangelists for EVs, and yet if they make it a hassle, consumers won't take them. A lot of people might try an EV rental and maybe fall in love with the driving experience, which is really fun if you're not used to the instant power and pickup of an electric car. But this seems like it'll scare people away if they aren't familiar with recharging. And Ben, Isaiah Cox, the CEO of Wheeltug, wanted to offer a clarification of sorts on our TaxiBot discussion last week. TaxiBot is an external device. Wheeltug, his company, is the motor built into the nose wheel of a plane that can drive the plane away from the gate area. Wheeltug has already signed 26 airlines, he says, for 2,666 narrow-body aircraft. And since the system is made available on a power-by-the-hour basis, there's no financial exposure or risk to an airline, Cox says. There's still regulatory approval steps ahead. So we did want to make that clarification between Wheeltug 
and, and the taxi bots we were talking about. That sounds great. And Isaiah, you're welcome to come on the show and give us more detail. One more comment we received, Scott. This one from our friend Mike Swiatek, a veteran airline strategist we've had on the show before. Mike says, hi, Ben and Scott. It's rare that I disagree with your opinions. However, I believe I have heard both of you state there should be regulation for airlines to re-protect on each other on non-normal operating environments. From my perspective, this would seem unfair for airlines who have more frequency on routes. Airlines work hard to create a frequency advantage which provides better customer service and hopefully higher yields for those airlines. To allow an airline with one frequency on a market as compared to an airline with 10 frequencies on a market would work when the small airline has to cancel and find seats, but not necessarily in reverse. For this reason, I would not regulate real protection, but rather require airlines to buy commercially priced tickets on the other carriers. Well, Mike, I don't think we ever meant to suggest that airlines reaccommodate passengers for free. I always thought airlines should settle up on reaccommodating passengers for each other but I'm not sure it needs to be commercially priced tickets, but maybe. And your frequency point is very well taken. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I think the assumption may be that uh, that stuff evens out, but you know there will be other markets where a big airline with lots of frequency has to cancel one flight uh, and and can't reaccommodate, but but there will be seats on the smaller guy. Um, maybe in a market where the smaller guy has more more frequency, I I, I agree, Ben, on the paying part. Um, part of this argument is that this would be a better remedy for travelers because many could get to their destination faster. And it, probably would be less expensive than setting up a system to compensate passengers through some kind of regulation regime. In most cases, passengers would rather go than sit around for days, even with compensation. But there has to be a cost to airlines. Making cancellations expensive gives airlines a stronger financial incentive to be more reliable. So make them buy tickets on other airlines. And now this week's question. It comes from Kyle from Minneapolis. It's been a decade and a half since Delta grounded Song and a tad less since United did the same to Ted. The airline industry has changed so much since then. Do you think a virtual airline could compete with the ULCC carriers? Slap a new coat of paint and an all-economy interior on a fleet of A321s and just ignore that the pilots and flight attendants are wearing a big three uniform. Great question. What do you think, Ben? Time for Airline Within an Airline Part 2? Well, it's an interesting idea, but I wouldn't bite on this. The reason is simple. The reason for Song and Ted and Cal Light and MetroJet and pick your favorite airline within an airline was always a labor arbitrage. It was always how can we get some of our crews to work for less money so that we can go compete with these startups? That always created tensions within the airlines, and it ignored a big reality, which is that the whole airline has to compete with the competitors, not just part of the airline. The problem with Song at Delta was that people at Delta could say, we don't have to worry about JetBlue or Southwest because Song is taking care of that. 
But that's not right. The whole airline has to think of it. Plus, being a low-cost airline isn't just paying labor a little less. It's the whole way they think of their business and simplify things. If Delta, for example, flies from Europe into their hub in Atlanta and someone buys a business class ticket, but then it's a song flight that goes from Atlanta to Orlando, are their customers going to like getting on an all-packed plane with no business class seat after they paid for business class to cross the ocean? And so there's a lot of issues that aren't resolved by the airline within an airline. The whole airline competes or it doesn't. That's my view, Scott. That's, that's a great explanation of it all. Uh, I remember being totally confused by, by Song. I remember talking to Fred Reed about uh, how Song was going to be a better experience than Delta. They were putting new interiors on airplanes, and they'd have better entertainment system, and they'd have this, and they'd have that. And I said, so you're going to give a better experience and charge a lower price And then that same customer is going to get back on a Delta airplane that doesn't have all these amenities and is paying a higher price. That just seems like the most ridiculous business model ever. Um, And in fact, it didn't last long. And history shows that airlines within an airline just don't work. And there's nothing about the world as it's shaped today that suggests that will change. Yeah. Have a great week, everyone, and look out for those earnings from American and United. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.